right, we have um, we've been steadily reading the Bible for um, six weeks now. <laughs> Covered the entire book of Genesis, and now we're into Exodus. What is the big change that takes place between Genesis and Exodus? God's people are set apart. Um, yes. Now we had we had Abraham set apart in Genesis. Well, ultimately he is. He promised that to Abraham. I mean, you all the families are to be blessed. Um, that's the difference. Genesis, he he addresses a family. In Exodus, he addresses a nation. Yeah. Um, so Mary Lee was close. I was just looking for more. <laughs> um, yeah, and between Genesis and Exodus, about how many years have elapsed? Well, how many years were they going to be slaves in Egypt? Four hundred, about four hundred years slaves in Egypt. Yeah, and how old was Moses when he led the people out? So that leaves about three hundred and twenty that we don't have in Genesis or in in Exodus. So, give or take as much much as many years as you want. <laughs> um, but the situation has has changed quite considerably since we ended Genesis. At the end of Genesis, the family, which uh, the last time we had a count, it was about seventy people, the family was part of the favorite in Egypt. Joseph being second in command. What position socially do they occupy in Exodus? Yeah, bottom of the. Bottom of the totem pole, they are slaves. That must have been a hard transition for these people to make. We don't, we don't have any stories about when it happened, but it must have been pretty bad. Of course, it's not the first time we've had a transition from the top to the bottom. That happened to Joseph before. You remember that? He was a favorite of his dad, and then he turned. He became a slave. Now the whole people. Haven't Adam and Eve? Yeah, that was boy the biggest one, wasn't it? <laughs> um, and we find in chapter one that um, not only are they slaves, but what is Pharaoh trying to do? Yeah, yeah, he's worried they're growing too fast. We know that by by the time they left Egypt. The, the population had grown to the point that how many men did we find? 600, yeah, 600,000 men able to bear the sword, I, I'm pretty sure is what the count was about. That's a lot more than 70. <laughs> and so he's trying to... Um, he, he, the, the first method he uses to try to stop their growth is to just give them more hard work. But the consequence of that is they just multiplied that much more. So then he, he starts switching over to um, actually putting the babies to death. Now let me, let's look at an outline of the book here. Um,
I'll mention there's a difference between this outline and the one we had for Genesis. The outline for Genesis was Moses' outline. Each of the each of the sections we there were how many how many sections in Genesis? Ten plus the prologue. Each of the sections was introduced by what phrase? Yeah, these are the generations of. And so it was very easy to, to figure out Moses' outline. Now Moses wrote this book too, but he didn't give us those nice clues for the outline. So this is just one that, that um, a modern uh, scholar has come up with. And uh, you know whether this was exactly what Moses had in mind, I don't know. Um, Alfred Edersheim did this. He lived well over 100 years ago. Uh, but Certainly the parts one and parts two, I think, are quite clear in, in the book. and we're, we're obviously in part one. Part one is the redemption of Israel. They, they were In Egypt, they needed to be redeemed out of slavery. Redemption is, a, is also a New Testament word. We're redeemed out of what? Yeah, we're from the slavery of sin. And then part two is the consecration of Israel as the people of God. They come out of, of Egypt... And, and they're no longer slaves, but they have to learn how to be separated to God. And, and Edersheim has divided, has figured out seven um, sections in each of these parts. So you know, it makes it, it's a nice Bible number there. Um, so the first, the first section we've got is in the first part is chapter or section is chapters one two. Israel increases and is oppressed in Egypt and then the birth and preservation of a deliverer. Which, of course, the Israelites don't know this. Um, when Moses is born, no one has the slightest idea that this is the one who's going to redeem Israel. But that's the way God works. Um, the same, we find the same thing in the New Testament where um, Jesus gets born in very humble circumstances and the general population has no idea that here, here the rescuer has arrived. Of course, in that case, there were some angels to announce it to a few. And with, with Moses, there was nothing. In fact, when's the last time that we've had God talking to any of his people? When was the last time? Well, he communicated to Joseph through dreams. I don't know. Yeah, he did, I don't think we ever find him talking to Joseph directly. He did talk to Joseph's father, Jacob. The last time I know of was when uh, Jacob was getting ready to go down into Egypt and God told him to go on, on down there and tell him he'll bring them back. Um, so it's been hundreds of years since any communication from God. And Moses gets born, no communication. His parents are not told, you know, be sure to take care of this one. He, he's special. They just see that you know he's he's a beautiful child, and and they they try to protect him, and he ends up growing up in whose house? Pharaoh's house. <laughs> God is preparing this this one. He's going to have an education unlike any of his fellow Israelites. He's going to be educated in all the wisdom of, of Egypt. Um, but how does he even know who he is if he's being adopted as an infant? I 
an interesting arrangement whereby his mother was a nurse. Yeah, his mother was hired to nurse him, so that would have occupied for, for as it could have been as much as three years. That uh, nursing mothers don't typically go that long today, but I might have read that's what they did back in those days. So. A three-year-old child can certainly learn stories. He could, and apparently he had learned enough that at the age of forty, he knew who he was and had decided whose side he was going to be on. And what does he do? Um, this is in part two, the calling and training of Moses. What does he do that shows whose side he's going to be on? Yeah, yeah, Ralph. Yeah, um, he. It, I'm pretty sure it says he went out to see his brethren. Um, yeah, that's in verse, chapter two, verse eleven. He went out to his brethren, looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Um, what kind of a beating do you think he was giving him? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't say that. Um, but I would say it would certainly have been a harsh beating. Um, tr- traditionally, people have not been uh, lenient on slaves, and I certainly don't. I doubt that they would have been back then. There, there was this prejudice against the entire uh, Israelite race, that, and um, any time you have a people that have absolute power over another people, they tend not to be. Uh, lenient. And so what did Moses do about it? Kill the guy, yeah. And um, that's right up to date. I mean, that's what, if you were going to make a movie of this, that's what you'd want to have, you know. This guy, this terrible, cruel guy, uh, bites the dust because he, you know, you don't mess with my people. <laughs> But obviously that was not God's plan. God, God certainly had picked Moses to be the one to lead the people out, but not the way Moses was going to do it. Moses was doing it with human means. And uh, God had God when God did it, He wanted to make sure it was very obvious this is God doing it, not men. Had Moses had his way, and I assume what Moses wanted to do once he killed one um, was to organize the people. Um, they can all have. They can have a big rebellion and run out of Egypt, and he, he'd rescue them. Uh, someone of Moses' training perhaps could do that organization and and, and could, could arrange for it. But what what happened that showed Moses that wasn't going to work? One of his own countrymen rejected him. He he was. You can understand why he would have been upset to see two Israelites fighting. Because he needs them to be united against the wicked Egyptians. He doesn't want them being wicked toward one another. Um, so he tried to straighten them out and they, they wouldn't have it. And then it became obvious they were going to use his murder of that Egyptian against him. So he left Egypt. And where did he go? Yeah, he ended up in Midian, let me see if I find this. Um, 
And this is the map of the Exodus, and we're not up to the Exodus yet, but he went to, um, he went into this area here in the Sinai Peninsula um, from, this is Egypt over here, the land of Goshen was where the Israelites were on the eastern side, and he ran into the, the uh, desert in Sinai uh, and hooked up with uh, a group of Midianites. By the way, who were the Midianites descended from? Joshua? Uh, Joshua hasn't been born yet. Oh, no, no, that's right. Um, oh, you were thinking of Ishmael. Uh, no, but they were actually descended from Abraham. He had some other wives beyond Sarah and Hagar. It's just mentioned very briefly, I think it's chapter 25 of Genesis. And the Midianites were descended from him. And um, later on we'll find um, his probably his brother-in-law uh, helping out as they go through the wilderness. And it, it's very obvious that the man believes in God. And I, I would assume that this came down from their ancestor Abraham. So, um, he gets married. How many years does he spend then in the wilderness uh, tending sheep? Forty years. So now, 40, he spent 40 years being trained in Egypt. He spends 40 years in the wilderness raising sheep. Sheep. Uh, was that a training as well? <laughs> well, he got to know the land. <laughs> yes, and more importantly, he 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 had some time to uh, take some of the edges off of his uh, fiery nature here. He, um, he was a ruler over sheep. Ruler over sheep. Yeah. <laughs> well, and if you think about it. What was he for for the next 40 years after that? He was a shepherd of God's people, wasn't he? <laughs> I think he would have rather had real sheep. That's right. <laughs> um, this is very similar to what happened with Joseph. We saw Joseph being the favorite son, and then, and then he became a slave, and then he became a prisoner. And God was training him through his experiences, preparing him for a position of leadership. And so with Moses, Moses was prepared not just by being educated in Egypt, he was prepared by having to wait for 40 years on God. And chapter 3 then takes us to the end of this 40-year period, and he's tending sheep near Mount Sinai, which is down toward the southern part of, of this peninsula. And we'll jump back to our outline. <coughs> And now we have his calling in chapters 3 and 4. Point 3 up there, or point 2. Um, how did God get his attention? Set a bush on fire that didn't consume. Yeah, yeah, he set a bush on fire and it, the, the bush wasn't getting burned up. Um, numerous times in the Bible, God represents himself as a fire. And this is just one of those times. And when Moses got close, what did God tell him? Take off your shoes because the shoes were used to protect his feet from dirt. 
shoes have dirt on them, don't bring anything unclean in the presence of God. And that, and of course, that message will be repeated later on in the Law of Moses. Uh, God demands purity when, when of the people who would approach Him. This is a major first here. Now, it's been the first; it's the first time that God has talked to any any humans in hundreds of years, from anything we have record of here. It's also the very first time in the Bible that that God has commissioned anyone to go to someone else. Prior to this, God has appeared to people, but He's never said, "I want you to go and tell so and so something." That, this is the very first time, and we'll see. And we'll see another first before we're done with this conversation. So, the Lord tells um, Moses that He is going to send him back to rescue His people from Egypt. And what is Moses' reaction? Yeah, he's not. He's not too happy about this. In verse eleven, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Um, now, 40 years earlier, he, that was not a question in his mind. Who am I? 40 years earlier, the question was, I am the one to do it. And now, after 40 years, he, he, is, he has learned humility. He has learned not to trust himself. And so what is God's response? This is verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. I will be with you. That's the solution to a problem. When, when, if, if, our, if our question to God is, who am I? God's answer is, well, I'll be with you. Solves the problem. So what's his next question? Who shall I tell the people that you are? Yeah, who shall I tell the people that you are? Great question. And what's the answer? I am. I am, yeah. Now, understand that the context here, God has made promises to Moses' ancestors. But those promises were a long, long time ago. 500 years? I mean, we're talking about a long time. And so the people could say, well, God was back there. But they would be less likely to say God is here. God, as far as they could tell, had forgotten them. But God says, I am. It's not just I was with Abraham. I am. And, and what God said to Abraham is what God still is going to do. God does not change. And, and that's the key point to this name. The name is describing God's character. And, and because God is always present, He always keeps His promises. And that's the point here. So when Moses goes to the Israelites, he's going to tell them that God is the I Am who is going to keep His promises He made to your forefathers. And he's... They in verse eighteen, God promises them they will pay heed to what you say. The Israelites are going to listen. However, there's someone else who isn't, and who is the someone else? Yeah, Pharaoh's not going to listen. To Pharaoh, he's not going to say, 
the I am has sent me. That, that's not who he says to him. In verse 18 to Pharaoh, he says, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, this is a point throughout the Old Testament. Anyone who wants to come to know God is going to have to come to know the God of the Hebrews. He, God chose to reveal Himself to the world through the Hebrew nation. Um, so, to the Israelites, God is I Am. To Pharaoh, He's the God of the Hebrews. And that did not rub Pharaoh the right way. <laughs> You're talking about the God of these slaves? The people that are baking my bricks? You know, I don't know anything about Him. But God promises one more thing before we finish chapter 3. And what is that? Yeah, you're not going to be going out like a bunch of slaves. You're going to be going out like a conquering army. You're going to be going out with the treasures of Egypt. Well, Moses has another question as we begin chapter 4. And what is that? What if they won't believe? What if they, believe? What if they say, hey, look, oh, I don't think the Lord has appeared to you? Then what? Show them this. This is the first in the Bible. This is the first time that God has ever given a human being the ability to work miracles. Now, we had interpretation of dreams before, but this is the first time someone can just go out and do a miracle. Someone, when someone sees this, say, that couldn't be unless God did that through him. And we're going to see this from, then, from now on with the preeminent miracles being done by Jesus. Um, Moses is kind of the... Um, he's the foreshadowing of Jesus. And, and in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer compares Moses and Jesus for, with good, for good reason. And what's the first miracle he's to do? Yeah. He had, he had this shepherd's staff, which I assume had a little crook on the end for you know hooking the legs of the sheep. <clears throat> Throw it down and it became a snake. Yeah. And what did Moses do when he saw the serpent? <laughs> he ran. Until God told him to do what? Pick it up by the tail. Yeah, I don't do not try this at home. <laughs> and when he did, he became a rod again. Now, this miracle, like in my, in my judgment, every miracle in the Bible symbolized certain things. Um, Egypt was symbolized by a serpent. You, you, may have, you may have seen pictures of pharaohs with a, a serpent on their, on their crown. Um, and uh, the Hebrew word used for serpent later on, I understand there's two different words for serpent used here in, in Exodus, but the Hebrew word for serpent later on when he does this miracle before Pharaoh is a word that can also be translated dragon. And it, you, you kind of need to understand that to understand in the book of Revelation when it talks about the dragon. It's, it's referring back to this same serpent, the enemy of God's people. And of course, where do we first have a serpent in the Bible? In the Garden of Eden. Yeah. So, here you have Moses who is a a humble shepherd represented by the staff, he throws the, the staff down, which would represent the fact that he's, he's no longer going to be a shepherd, and now he's up against a serpent. 
But the serpent does not get the better of him. He picks the serpent up by the tail in perfect safety. It again becomes a shepherd's staff, but this time the shepherd's staff is going to be used to lead God's people, not the sheep. So this, this miracle is a picture of, of what God is going to do with, with this man Moses. Then there's another miracle. And what's the second one? He didn't do this one for, for Pharaoh, I don't think. But he did it for the Israelites. Put his hand in, it says, put, it, put his hand in his bosom, yes. And when he took it out, what did his hand look like? Oh, that's terrible. And then what? Put it back in, pull it out, and it's clean. Now, to understand that, we have to understand that, and I don't have the reference in front of me, but somewhere in the book of Numbers, it, it tells us that Moses was carrying the people in his bosom. He was the shepherd of these people. He's carrying them in his bosom. And, and so I think that his hand represents the people of Israel. And at the time, the people of Israel were in terrible shape, just like as if your hand had leprosy. Seemingly a useless people. But through God's miraculous care over them, they're going to be pulled out as perfectly clean and normal. Anyway, that's my guess on what this symbolizes. Um, And then finally there was a third sign He was going to do. Yeah, water to blood. All right, so um, finally, unfortunately, Moses has makes one objection too many. Um, he uh, he says in verse eleven, "Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will." In other words, anybody but me. And and it says the anger of the Lord burned against Moses because God had answered all of his reasonable objections. This one was just a refusal to do what God said, and God wasn't going to put up with that. So Moses went. <laughs> um, along the way, what happened to him? God was going to kill him. God was going to kill him. Why? Yeah, one of his sons hadn't been circumcised. He had two sons, but apparently one of them hadn't been circumcised. And the lesson there is that if someone is going to be picked by God to do God's work, that person had better be set apart to God. They had better be doing God's will. Having God's commission does not give us the right to play fast and loose with God's work. The people that are going to be doing God's God's work have to be that much more careful to, to do exactly what He says. And so once they had that solved, everything was okay. And they Moses appeared to the elders of Israel and what was their reaction when they heard this word? Yeah, when he did the signs, what was their reaction? Yeah, this was wonderful. Now, I skipped a really important thing, and I have to go back to this. Um, the end of chapter 2, it came about in the course of those many days as the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
This whole thing got started by the prayers of the children of Israel. When Pharaoh died, and, and I'm sure they were hoping, you know, that this will solve our problem. This Pharaoh has been just terrible. Once he's dead, things will get easier, and it didn't get any easier. And they just, what are we going to do? What they did was they cried to God. And God heard them, and so he called Moses. Now, we have this thing all through the Bible. You have this partnership between humans and God, and yet it's always God working it out. God had already told Abraham how long it was going to last even. And yet it very specifically says that when he answered, that he was answering in response to the crying of the, of the children of Israel. So these are the people that have been crying out. So I'm sure when Moses showed up and did these signs, they, they recognized God has heard our prayers. Praise the Lord. And that lasted until when? Until Yeah, and Pharaoh made things even worse. Um, so the, the leaders of the slaves are being beaten, the Israelites, the foremen, because they're not turning out enough bricks because Pharaoh basically set up a situation where they couldn't. There was no way they were going to succeed. And so now what do the Israelites think about Moses? You've got us in that there. Yeah. Um, said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses is getting his first taste of what it's like to be a spokesman for God and a leader of God's people. He's leading people that, that are going to be awfully hard to lead. So what does Moses do when they talk to him like that? He goes to God. And that's exactly what he should have done. He asks God, why? Why have you done this? You've brought harm to your people. And you know something? God doesn't answer his question. Um, now we can look back and we, we can actually see the, the answer. Why do you think God would have made it harder on the people at that time? It's going to make his miracles that much more. The rescue is going to be, yeah. That they'll glorify God that much more, won't they? There's another reason too. And think about after they get in the wilderness for a while, what do they want to do? Go back to Egypt. Where, it was, where life was great. <laughs> well, this is they're going to end up with, with this picture that life is not so great. Now that they for, Even then they forget it. But God is trying to, to show them the huge contrast between before God comes to rescue them and afterwards. But, but God doesn't tell Moses that. All God says is, um, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go. So, it's time to go before Pharaoh. And we get into chapter 7. Um, and in starting at verse 8, um, Aaron's rod becomes a serpent. Let's see, that is... We're up to number four there, the signs and the wonders. And but God allowed Pharaoh to be deceived here. Who was it who was the tool for deceiving Pharaoh? His magicians. His magicians, because what did they do? Yeah, they threw their rods down, and they became serpents too. <laughs> no big deal, except what happened? 
<laughs> Aaron's snake ate theirs up. <coughs> that should have been a warning to Pharaoh. But of course, he didn't, he didn't want to be warned. So <laughs> we can get more of these. Yes, where they came from. So we begin the plagues. How many plagues are there? Yeah, ten total. We're doing nine this morning. If anyone needs or would like a copy of, of these slides, let me know afterwards. I've got a few. Yeah, Ralph. Something that uh, up to this point that when I was reading that kind of interesting was that the Pharaoh wanted Moses killed when he left. Yeah. And that those people had died off when he came back. Yeah, yeah. In fact, God had reassured him. God had told him the people were dead. Yeah. So it was safe for him to come back. Relatively safe. <laughs> the Pharaoh is still not a very safe guy, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. God waited not only till till Moses had matured a little bit, but He waited till after Pharaoh had died. So you got the combination: Pharaoh died, you the people are praying. Moses is more mature. He brought it all together. Yeah, Joe. What was interesting too was that even amidst all these plagues, no one was trying to take Moses' life. You know, on the, the Egyptians or Pharaoh, when none of them said, "Hey, go take care of this guy. We've had enough." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they understood that that would not be a smart thing to do. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> he was protected by the most powerful God, God on earth, and most of the Egyptians were figuring that out, even if if Pharaoh wasn't. So we begin this sequence of, of plagues, and I've divided them into groups of three, as you can see. With the third one, I've given a different color. Um, anyone know what the, what's unique about each of these third ones? Uh, no, it's a good guess, but that's, that's not it. The difference between what reflects the Egyptians well, that change came after number three. From number four on, those plagues did not affect the Israelites. But the third one, the sixth one, the ninth one, all of them have one thing in common. Pharaoh was told. Pharaoh was not told ahead of time. Yes. <clears throat> um, for number one, he was warned. You don't let the people go? I'm going to turn your water to blood. And so he did. You don't let my people go? I'm going to bring frogs on the land. So he did. Number three, gnats appeared. No warning to Pharaoh. They just appeared. <laughs> and, and you have the same thing with the boils and with the darkness. They're, they're, they're coming in threes. Each set of three being more powerful than the previous set of three. And each set of three ending with one that comes without warning. And I assume the reason it comes without warning is because Pharaoh has proven himself unworthy of the warning. He's had two warnings in a row and he's done nothing. So the third one, bam. And um, the first three would not be pleasant, but they did not bring physical pain, and certainly not death. Um, except, for, except there were some fish that died. <laughs> the next three are far worse. I assume these insects are, are much worse than the gnats. Uh, the, King, the old King James calls them flies, and, and the they're not like house flies, maybe like black flies, but but they 
Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure they were they were biting flies that, that would have been quite painful. And then the cattle disease killed a lot of their cows, and then finally the boils would, would have been extremely painful on the people. And then the last set of, are the worst ever, with, with hail killing some of the people out in the fields, killing animals, uh, destroying trees and all that, and the locusts just eating up all the food that there is. And finally, with the darkness, it says so thick that it can be felt. They, they, stayed, it, they stayed in their dwellings, but it says in, in Israel they had light inside their dwelling, which means that this darkness was so thick you couldn't even light a lamp and see where you were. It was um, um, the, basically what they would have in, in, with a very thick dust storm. Um, now, the other thing going on during these nine plagues um, is that after a certain... Well, Pharaoh would begin by making promises. Um, when, when the plague was so bad, he would... Um, he would ask um, in, in chapter 8, verse 8, entreat the Lord to remove the frogs from me. And, and Moses says, well, I'll give you the honor of naming the time when the frogs will leave uh, so that it could be obvious it wasn't just some trick or, or, or wasn't just going to happen anyway if he hadn't said anything. Jim, I think that that's the same. I don't think that happens in the gnats or the boys. Oh, you don't think he... You don't he he asks. Okay, so you may be right. That so there's two things with the with those threes. Alright, I think that's good. Um, with the um, with the gnats, um, we had a first. Um, up until this point, the first two plagues, the magicians had duplicated it. But with the third one, what did they say? This is the finger of God. They couldn't do it. And in fact, with the sixth one, what did we have with the magicians? They couldn't respond. They were, they were, <laughs> they were laid up with boils. They couldn't even stand before Moses. Yeah. So, um, I'm trying to find out where it is that Moses starts. Um, Yes, in chapter 8, verse 28, I think that's the very first time when Moses starts bargaining. Um, see, in verse in 8, 28, I will let you go. Let me sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you should not go very far away. So he's starting to, he's starting to make these bargains. He's not doing strictly what God demands. Um, he's trying to come halfway and... Um, uh, I expect God's going to appreciate that. And of course, each time, in fact, what does Pharaoh end up doing? Yeah, he, he reneges on, on his promise. Um, it says he hardened his heart. Um, with the cattle disease, um, Moses, uh, Pharaoh did one more thing which should have helped him see something. He, he got some extra information. What was that? He checked the yeah, how are the cattle of the Israelites doing? <laughs> they're, they're just fine. Ours are dropping dead all over the place. That should have told him something. But he still hardened his heart. Didn't let the people go. And So God continues with 
to make these plagues worse and worse. These plagues become um, the, the symbol of God's judgment used later on in the Bible. In fact, in the book of Revelation, um, the, uh, the seven trumpets, most of those are based upon the, the ten plagues. And the seven bowls of wrath, are, most of them are also based on the ten plagues. This is, it, it symbolizes the conflict between good and evil and the way God judges the evil people who are oppressing His own people, the good people. Um, and it couldn't have happened if God hadn't had a guy like Pharaoh. <laughs> um, your average person would have, would have caved in after like plague number two. <laughs> Pharaoh was unique. He was amazingly hard-hearted and it gave God, well, God the opportunity that God intended from day one, and that is to fully display His power against the most powerful nation on earth. And I'll mention that with, with both Moses and with Jesus, we have each of them being born into the most powerful empire on earth of, the, of its day. And with Egypt, you have a physical confrontation. With Jesus, you have a spiritual confrontation. But in both cases, they bring the empire to their knees. Um, with the plague of locusts, we have something else, uh, another first. Well, um, I'm looking at verse 7. This is chapter, sorry, chapter 10, verse 7. Oh, the Pharaoh's servants. <laughs> yeah. It's finally got to the point where even Pharaoh's servants screw up the courage to try to entreat him that, you know, we're in really bad shape. And he's promised this terrible locust invasion. Um, and they, they, they sort of let Pharaoh fill in the blanks there, but um, that's the very first when actually his own people are asking him to, to give in on this. And he gives another, Pharaoh offers another compromise. You know, you can go, but not everybody can go. And he, he offers several of these compromises over a period of time. Um, and a number of times he says he's sorry, he sinned, and you know, take away this plague, and, and, and he'll let the people go, and, and each time, of course, he hardens his heart. And the locust thing, just that left Egypt in just terrible, terrible shape. You combine the hail, uh, killing animals and all, with the locusts killing everything the hail had left. And, but he still hardened his heart. And so finally, he's given this plague of darkness. Now, you remember that... These plagues are designed to be an attack on the, the gods of Egypt. They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped the land. Um, they worshipped uh, cows. They worshipped the sun. And this last plague is a plague on, on their sun god, Ra, with this three days of darkness. And it's also symbolic. You, you, you know how the Bible teaches God is light in Him is no darkness at all. And darkness symbolizes uh, sin and, and ignorance. And that's what was 
I think that's what it symbolized when it came upon the, the Egyptians. Um, there's going to be one more plague. Um, it, it's a couple chapters away. We read through... Yeah, go ahead, Joe. I was going to say, it has that darkness. When Jesus was on the cross, it was dark for three hours. Three hours. That number three keeps... Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, yes. Three being the number connected in the Bible with, with what? With God, yeah. Three is the number connected with God. <clears throat> I don't think it's by accident we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, yes, the three hours of darkness I, I think are a very good parallel with this three days of, of darkness. And and you also have this, this same darkness theme coming up in the book of Revelation as well. It's interesting how they describe the darkness. So, uh, darkness... So Feel, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, could, I don't know if you if you've ever ever been in a really dark place like a cave with all the lights turned off. You put your hand right in front of your face, you can see nothing. Yeah. So now um, I got to talk about uh, what we're doing next week. Uh, next week is is weekend our, our lectures, and John Trimble is going to be speaking for us on Sunday. So he'll be speaking at, in the class and the, the morning service and the evening service. We'll actually have three sermons. Or if he wants to conduct the first one as a class, he might do that. So we don't want to get behind our reading. So keep on with your reading. The, the, you, you've got the, the uh, schedule. And the Sunday after that, we'll be covering two weeks of reading. So 20-some chapters instead of, in this case, just 11 chapters. And if, if I can't cover all that in the one week, then the following week I'll make it up. And by the time we're finished with Exodus, we should be caught up. <laughs> so now I understand uh, tradition from the days when people are in college, you only do some, something the night before it's due. <laughs> And I, I'm not recommending you wait till the night before to read 20-some chapters. <laughs> so, all right. We'll, we'll stop there. I appreciate everyone's help this morning.